Good afternoon, everyone. This is Dr. Richard McCallum, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, the major journal for the American Federation uh, for Medical Research. I'm joining you this afternoon as part of our monthly podcast series, where we bring interesting topics to you um, to try to update you and learn about the um, recent developments in the field, often having an expert uh, respond to my questions and have a discussion that may be helpful for everyone. As you know, medicine is an art and a science of prevention, diagnosis, management of diseases, as well as the care for the patient and the community, regardless of age, wealth, sex, race, nationality, or orientation. Recently, there have been a number of challenges to these concepts, and they've been evolving, but seem to have come to a head more in the last number of months, particularly this year. And so all universities have been searching for ways to try to address and improve uh, these areas. Here at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, um, we have just initiated uh, our first uh, Council of Diversity and Inclusion. And uh, we have Dr. Blake Boosie as the first chair, first elected chair. Dr. Boosie, assistant professor of family medicine um, who joined Texas Tech in 2018 after serving for the US Army as an officer. Um, he completed his residency in family medicine at Womack Army Medical Center in Fort Bragg. And prior to that, completed medical school at Western University uh, College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. And so we were very fortunate to have Dr. Blake Boosie agree to join us and help us understand what his new committee is doing, the first chair, um, and some of the issues that all of us are wrestling with and, and how they are being uh, slowly, uh, but very thoughtfully addressed here at Texas Tech, which is reflective of what is being done elsewhere in the country. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Blake Boosie, who's going to help us understand this evolving area of diversity and inclusion at our universities. So Blake, officially welcome. Thank you, sir. It's so good to be here. This is your first year as chair of the Council of Diversity and Inclusion, Texas State University Health Sciences Center here in El Paso. As you know, all medical schools are developing councils and committees like yours. Um, diversity, healthcare access have been around for quite a while. Why do you think now, Blake, that this topic or this issue is sort of on the front burner and uh, is being addressed everywhere or being discussed everywhere? Like your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So. With, uh, with the issue of racism, diversity, this issue has been here since the founding of our country. Um, the, you know, in our constitution, all men were created equal, but at that time, not everybody was actually counted equally from the voting point of view. I mean, with the 19th Amend uh, Amendment that was ratified in 1920, women weren't even allowed to vote until that point. 
Uh, black men weren't given full uh, voting rights until 1870. Uh, so with that, these inequalities have been with us since the beginning. Just like any, any scar, no one wants to pick at it uh, to find what's underneath. And I think we're at that point in our, our uh, country's evolution and growth uh, where we're starting to pick at the scars uh, and the scabs that have been left behind from years of inequality. Um, as such, uh, things have been punctuated recently in, in uh, our public. I mean, we had a murder that happened last year of George Floyd, um, the subsequent Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement that came uh, around with it. And then you start looking at COVID-19, uh, some anti-Asian anti racism came out of the woodwork. Um, we had all types of movements across, across the United States that kind of echoed the civil rights movements and the suffrage movement. And as our culture continues to address those inequalities, um, it's, it's one of the reasons why us as healthcare providers are finding ourselves in the middle of trying to bridge the gap, but also educate ourselves on how to better provide and teach the next generation of healthcare providers. So I think, I think that's probably why it's in the forefront over the last few years. That's a nice summary, Blake. Um, let me now say that, as you said, we, we have a number of what I'd call national social issues, Black Lives Matter, recent Asian American violence, uh, I'd like to know what your strategies are uh, here with the council and what you perceive nationally of how we can focus this sort of we on healthcare issues. As I mentioned, it's just like picking at any scab. You start picking, people don't like it. Uh, so first of all is identifying and, and recognizing that there are inequalities, um, these health disparities, these inequalities in delivery. Uh, you look at different areas in the United States that have poor income, lower taxes, you start seeing that they don't get as many vaccines or they don't get the COVID-19 vaccine first. Those are things that are just on the forefront. So even within El Paso, uh, I know I've been watching the zip codes and the vaccination rates and they are not equal across all of El Paso, which um, is an interesting thing. I mean, I, I live here and I, I feel like I give good care and I know that my colleagues do, but obviously there's something in our system, the way we're delivering that's not equal. Um, now, with that, there are different things that as healthcare providers, we have to recognize is the inequality number one, uh, but also understand the definitions that go behind things because it gets very difficult to kind of sparse these all out. Um, when we talk about social justice uh, versus social determinants of health, equity and equality, they all have specific definitions. And with all these, they, they are evolving as time goes on because um, what was equality last year is not the same as what is equality now. And equity is coming out as the forefront of kind of what people are looking at. So when I say equality, um, so imagine, you know, three people, different heights, um, they're all given the same amount, but you know, that short guy still can't see over the, the fence. Everybody's seen that, uh, meme, hopefully, <laughs> mm -hmm. but that's, that's equality. So, you know, we're all given the same starting point, but because of genetic or, uh, skin color or, um, background or, uh, you know, social, uh, determinants being like, they're being a little bit poorer neighborhood, those type of things it doesn't matter if you give them the same amount, they're not gonna catch up as easily because of those, those things are holding them back. Now with that, you know, you can have somebody that's an exceptional person and uh, that has its own problems. Like you talk about 
the Asian Americans and they're the, the ideal immigrant uh, mentality. Um, that's come out a couple of times. And then we had the anti-Asian movement. So it's very confusing <laughs> to watch <laughs> unfold. Um, so going back to the equality equity thing, like uh, the quality of being fair, uh, the quality of being fair and impartial is equity. So despite those uh, shortcomings in the beginning, being able to give somebody the same kind of outcome in the end, at least all the opportunities to get there in a fair and equitable way, that's equity. Um, so that's something that we're moving away, moving towards. Um, now with this, I know I come from a very um, red part of my state in Washington. So I, I come from a place where I was taught specific things and it took a long time for me to understand the other side. So one of the things I'm trying to help my colleagues uh, around the, the campus and as, as well as the state understand is that it, it comes from a place of mutual understand or mutual caring and respect. So when you don't understand things, our natural inclination when we're frustrated is to lash out and say, well, I don't believe that. And it's like, oh, that's great. Belief is one thing, but understanding is another. So when you don't understand something, asking the questions, having the hard conversations, understanding somebody else's perspectives, backgrounds, the things that they've had to struggle through and, and really empathizing. Like, would I be where I am if I had a different skin color? Would I be where I am now if I came from a poor home? Would I be where I am now if, uh, if I didn't speak English? I mean, those are, those are hard questions and very difficult to answer. And sometimes it's, it's, hard to have that inner inner uh, introspection so um, I'm trying to trying to build a culture of mutual mutual respect and caring as kind of like the baseline mm -hmm. and golden rule it so that people can start uh, start learning from each other because really our uh, our ignorance becomes much more precise when we gather knowledge well um, that's a that's a very good answer Blake thank you so um do you think the COVID 19 world well, i mean where every night we had endless hours of introspection and microanalysis and uh, reanalysis of every data point in the country clearly that opened up the wound it was more than picking uh, this was pretty much an incision uh in the wound and brought out some uh, disparities that were not new uh but it emphasized uh, those disparities. On the other hand, you know, I'm here in El Paso uh, struggling to vaccinate people. We have a free clinic on Saturday morning. We went down there this weekend and tried to do some vaccinations. And I'm, I'm learning about a certain amount of uh, inherent resistance. I talked to the army, your background, actually only 25% of people at Fort Bliss as of today have been vaccinated. Have any thoughts about that? I love your questions. These are great. Um, so again, uh, from the medical, uh, the military background, it's an interesting one. Seeing my fellow military folks not wanting to get vaccinated for this. Um, I've had conversations with them uh, over time, uh, the ones that have been hesitant. And part of it is uh, the lack of trust in the healthcare system. And we're partially to blame for that, right? Like a couple decades ago, 50 years ago, the Tuskegee syphilis mm -hmm. trials happened where we, uh, I say we as a global, not, I wasn't there, of course, I'm, I'm not 50, but um, our, our medical institutions were entrusted with the healthcare of our communities. And unfortunately during that time, 
black men were um, experimented on essentially. So you had uh, people with syphilis that went untreated just to see what happens to untreated uh, syphilis. So part of that uh, still exists. That's part of our history. We have to own up to it, understand like why we have the IRB, that type of thing. But for the military side, there's also uh, vaccine hesitancy in general because there have been side effects from uh, mandatory vaccines uh, and people fear having those side effects, having repercussions for their, their families. And that's compounded uh, by political, political components. So um, don't want to like single anybody out, of course, but when your leaders are telling you that, you know, this thing's a hoax, like some people will listen and some people won't. It's like anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people don't trust uh, the government as a result, like a mandatory vaccine seems pretty terrifying. Um, so ultimately understanding, having the conversations, finding that mutual caring and respect is where it's going to come down to. It was interesting. There was a, there was a study in regards to uh, vaccine hesitancy and you take people that are across the board uh, hesitant and you ask them, Hey, what if your leader said, uh, vaccinate today? You'd be like, no, he was coaxed. Yeah. What if this happened? Oh no, I would never do it. What if your family physician had a conversation with you about the vaccine, explained it to you and recommended it? it about 30% changed their mind. So that, I mean, that's huge. That, that mutual caring and respect, um, letting people have the autonomy to make their choices, but also providing them the education. Like that's a core feature of family medicine is the biopsychosocial model. Um, application of it can, can move mountains. Um, especially when it comes from a, uh, you know, a neutral <laughs> place. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's an excellent point. And actually, it, it's amazing how many people use this sort of asterisk on the FDA approval that we're giving this um, vaccine emergency approval uh, as a life-saving um, way of, of, of trying to overcome COVID. Somehow people are fixated on that. I don't know why and how it was even pointed out, probably by some family skeptic in, the, in their group, that this is still emergency. The FDA has never given a blanket approval to forever. Uh, and until we get that blanket approval, we, we can't act on this emergency approval. I'm alarmed when you see uh, on TV the thousands of people dying every day, some of them family members, and yet they would select this emergency asterisk as a way of procrastinating. That, that, that's kind of frightening to me. Oh, me too. Um, so, I mean, the proof is in the pudding here. I mean, our, our hospital was maxed out as far as COVID patients not too long ago. We had 40 people in the ICU in a 10-bed ICU. I mean, that was, that was our reality. Um, my colleagues were stressed out. They were tired. I was tired trying to help out as best I could, but I'm not an ICU provider. Um, but the, when the vaccine came out, people got vaccinated. We started seeing those numbers drop like a rock. And as the mask mandate came off, I, I had my own fears and my own worry that we were going to see a surge again, but because we are so well vaccinated in El Paso, we haven't seen the massive surge, which impresses me. And again, um, I say this to all my friends too, like the ones that are hesitant, I'm like, listen, we, we don't know the future. No one does. And when you listen to people and making predictions, like, are you going to listen to somebody talking about their belief or are you going to be the one that listens to hard data? Like we had a year of hard data that looks really good when you get into it and 
yeah, we need validation studies, absolutely, long-term, but this looks great, so. All right, let's get back to uh, the day-to-day -day struggle. Tell us, a bit oh, yeah. about, tell us a bit about the strategies of your council on your first year on the job, and tell us about um, some perspectives or some personal um, insights you have, but why don't you detail a bit about um, how your committee is sort of putting their arms around this kind of huge issue and any specific gains or any specific forward thinking that you think has evolved this year? So I, I will start with all my views are my own. That way I'm not, I'm held accountable and I don't hurt anybody. <laughs> so, but in regards to the council, I'm really proud of them. They have come together in a new council, uh, trying to find our way, um, getting the political backing and understanding, uh, because again, new kid on the block, but we're a Texas Tech El Paso uh, University wide um, council. So we oversee all the other uh, schools and and uh, faculty. So, as such, it, the the hierarchy structure structure was one of our first struggles. Was that people postured and we we were nice back, and um, it's just finding our way as far as a new council, uh, which is not unique. I mean, anytime you start something new, there's going to be pushback, and that's not in a negative way. It's just that's that's human nature. Um, as far as uh, things that we've been trying to do, uh, we developed the diversity statement for the university, which is being modeled, uh, is being used as a model for the following diversity statements at every uh, school level. And as I've been here and being part of it, I didn't realize that outside institutions had specific, uh, specific say in how we word things. So having that understanding actually opened up an entire realm in my mind about uh, the university and how it interacts. So uh, just because a university isn't uh, as um, robustly open uh, in their diversity and inclusion components, it doesn't mean they're not trying to. So we actually have a lot of faculty here that are trying very hard to advocate for uh, equality, equity, social justice. Um, it's just, we have, it, it's, it's a struggle. We're in a, in a very red state <laughs> and there's outside influences that, uh, determine who gets admitted to the schools and how how this goes and that goes so um understanding all that and un unwinding that ball and that tangle has been uh, an interesting experience um and with that my my role uh this is almost voluntary in a lot of ways so i'm part of the council but i still have all of my duties as a, a primary care provider so <laughs> This is on top of it. Um, I, I could see how this role could become something that's it's 100% of your, your workload uh, because it, it's not going to stop uh, for one day a week or, or one day a month uh, for the meeting. Like it's it, things evolve, things change, insurrections happen, you have to respond like that that exists. Um, as far as these challenges, they're not unique. Um, I'm I get to interact with uh, my colleagues across Texas and a lot of the things we're facing here at Texas Tech El Paso, uh, it's the same thing that they're experiencing elsewhere. So um, across the board, we're all trying to do our best to improve our ability to not only uh, model diversity and inclusion, but also teach the next generation so that they're prepared to work uh, in say New York or in California or any of the places that 
are very, very much uh, more socially justice oriented. Like you go to UC Berkeley, you say that name and it's like, okay, <laughs> we're going. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting position. Um, a lot of interesting challenges. I am so thankful that I have a, a strong uh, backing from our, our administrative side um, because without them, I wouldn't be able to do this. So, so uh, you know, El Paso, perhaps isn't a blueprint for the country. You know, we have what, 70, 75% Hispanic. We have probably less than 5% African-American. And we have um, a sprinkling of Asian-Americans and some other international students who come here, but don't always make a home here. So you, you have to sort of, in a way, extrapolate from the El Paso blueprint to Houston, which would be a, a day and night blueprint uh, regarding their um, their makeup, and uh, so you're you're kind of struggling with that as well, right? You have to uh, extrapolate away from just perhaps the the El Paso model. Yeah. So with El Paso, um, the community here is amazing, by the way. So uh, my wife and I fell in love with it when we first moved here uh, to Fort Bliss, uh, and then subsequently to uh, within El Paso. Um, very friendly, very, very welcoming, um, good, good people, feels like a small town. Um, it's very enjoyable to be here besides it being a desert, <laughs> sure. but, uh, yeah, we have a very different population mix than the remainder of Texas or a lot of places in the United States. So, um, the being diverse, uh, and inclusive is harder. Like if you're, Asian American, African American, it, it is harder to find mentors that uh, have your similar background, have your similar perspectives. And with uh, Texas Tech, I know, especially with the medical school, that was the one I had the most interaction with. Uh, they're required to have 90% within Texas admissions. So 10% comes from outside of Texas. And that's an interesting component too. So you try to make uh, or you try to ensure that your mix of uh, applicants and acceptance uh, match the demographics of the remainder of, of Texas. And it, it just it creates a problem. Like, are we discriminating because we're following a hard, fast percentage for a state when it doesn't represent the local community? And that's a hard question. I, don't, I, I think, again, if we can get to the, like one core thing, I think it'll be like the mutual caring and respect and understanding why things are made that way. And then when it's, when it is something that's inequitable, you know, bringing it up and having that hard conversation of how do we, how do we improve or do we want to continue doing this? Or is, is there uh, outside pressure, inside pressure to do it differently? Are we, are we hurting people because of our practices? Those are hard conversations and it takes, it takes time. Well, I think, I think this has been a very nice summary. It's, we could go on for a long time, obviously, and we will, I think, revisit this point. It's a nationally important point, uh, probably as important as some of the medical stories of the month that I've come up with in the past. And it's one that's um, it's going to be with us. This is work in progress. Uh, this is baby steps. But uh, you're at the forefront here at our university. I know we're in good hands. And I think some of the... Um, visions and some of the experiences you've had already uh, and are sharing with our national audience it will be well accepted and well and well appreciated dr Busey. so thank you thank, thank you. you for taking the time and thank you for your insights and um 
Uh, we look forward to a, perhaps a chapter two on this in the not too distant future. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. And I know the audience, AFMR, are going to enjoy this podcast. And um, I, will know, I will now sign off on behalf of Corina Espino, who uh, makes all this happen. And for the AFMR, we have our podcast uh, in place every month. You can pick it up uh, and replay it and listen to all our podcasts over the last 15 months. They're well advertised and uh, available. So once again, colleagues, good afternoon. And we'll see you next month. Bye-bye.